Hey team, you're about to experience my interview with Andrew Kemp. He is a co-founder and director of Bear Kind. Bear Kind are extremely unique bamboo fabric-based socks that have animals represented on them. They're extremely fun, extremely collectible socks, but they're also sustainable, made of sustainable fabric, and they go one step further. This is a company that has a sustainability in its background and a social conscience built right into its business model. They donate 10% of profits on every pair to save animals through animal charities. Check out this interview. I think you're going to enjoy it. Welcome to B2B Commerce Corner. Commerce Corner is a sub-series of the E-Commerce Edge podcast discussing all things B2B commerce through the lens of agencies, consultants, merchants, and more. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Pod. I have an amazing guest here for you today, and I really am looking forward to having this conversation because I think it's going to bring some things to light that we haven't really discussed before on The Pod. Welcome, Andrew Kemp from Bear Kind to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jason, for having me. Really happy to be here. I had a good conversation last time. I think this will be the same. Yeah, look, we did have a great conversation. We had a great chat about Mikata and really how you guys came to find Mikata in the first place. And this time around, what I want to cover off in a little bit more detail is a little bit more of the history of Bearkind, how you guys came to be, how you even came to be in the space. But then tailing onto the backside of that, really how you decided your channel mix. How did you decide, okay, from day one, we decided we were going to be D2C and B2B, or we started out D2C, added B2B later, or vice versa. I really want to talk about channel mix because I think that this conversation is one that is becoming much more acute, particularly as the market continues to detract for D2C. There's a lot of D2C brands coming to me and saying, hey, we need to increase our distribution. We're looking at B2B as a potential way to do it. But maybe tell us a little bit about the history of Bearkind to kick us off and we can go from there. Yep. So we started Bearkind almost five years ago now. Lucy, my partner, started it. I came into the business full-time about a year and a half ago. We are a bamboo sock company that sells yeah, bamboo socks where 10% of the profits go to the animal on the sock. We believe that all businesses should be able to, I guess, give back in a bigger purpose and a bigger way. And so we think the world would be amazing. Imagine if we had every business gave 10% of profits back. So that's like our overall idea. We are really passionate about saving animals, I think, just because Lucy's always been a lover of animals. We've got a rabbit ourselves dogs kind of family and all that type of thing and the business has grown i think there's probably a channel conversation and a product conversation we've gone from metal straws t-shirts bags plastic plastic t-shirts if you can imagine that and now we've, we've got onto socks and we've been in socks now for the past three years that product evolution has, has grown and to your point around how has our channel mix evolved as well it's been rapid to say the least past 18 months we've deep gone really deep into the the B2B side of the business. Like you say, exactly the same problems every other business is having and articulating it like the way that you have. We are seeing increasing CAC costs. We are finding it harder to find those right customers. iOS 14 just destroyed us, what, what small businesses, our lifeblood really. And so then looking to the B2B space as our product matured, it got to the point where we felt comfortable to be able to put this in front of retailers every single day. And so now we're at about a third B2B versus two thirds B2C. Jason, have I lost you? you? You did, but I'm back now. So that's fine. The recording would have continued on from your side. So we can fix this up after the pod. But 
you were talking about how that channel mix has evolved. As I understand it, you started out as a pure play D2C brand and you had your Shopify website selling direct to consumer. And you really, because you've been doing this for over five years, you really started at a time when I guess when we think about the digital marketing mix and your acquisition mix, it really was at a, it was like the golden age, right? During of acquisition, when you combine the power of Google with the power of Facebook, the fat power of Instagram, and when we think of performance marketing, really they were the lion's share of performance marketing. Sure, you could do display, you could do crypto, you could do lots of other things, but really, when it came to performance marketing, they were it, and it was relatively cheap relatively easy to win customers or at least find customers that already had demand for your product and really just get your product in front of them. And really the variable of success really just was purely the creative. And obviously at some point you must have made the decision, wow, the market is changing. We need to get broader distribution. We're proud of our brand. We're proud of our products. We're proud of our ethos. And in order to do that, we now need to establish a B2B channel. That's really the next logical step for us. Yeah, absolutely. I think you put it well. From a storyline, we had a relatively immature business pre-COVID came in, ROAS went through the roof. I was just reflecting on a YouTube the other day, 10 times ROAS. Imagine those days now, it was just ridiculous. <laughs> Everything sold out instantly. Biggest problem was how do we get more stock? How do we get through those supply constraints? And now it's it's dip, it dipped to five, to four, to three. And then in platform, you're looking at two, but then it's attributed across multiple platforms. The normal names you've got there of Google, Facebook, you'll have you, they all claim credit for the same sale. And so then looking at that B2B platform where you can actually attribute it all within that same platform and get it directly to sales, the likes of Mercado, we can generate sales going straight through the website. We can track them through a bit easier. We can then also look at what we've got with FAIR and those wholesale marketplaces as well that they come in and we can attribute them directly as well. And we pay, I'm sure, a little bit of a fee. But if you look at the commission costs at 15%, you're looking at a seven and a half times ROAS. Fantastic. Most businesses can work with that. That's a sustainable ROAS for most businesses. Absolutely. And one of the things I'm seeing, and I want to know if this was an evolution that you went through as well, is that whether it's a B2B brand that started out B2B and then look, they're looking to establish a D2C channel or whether they're a D2C brand looking to establish a B2B channel, because those are such radically different business models, they require quite a distinctly different skill set. They require quite a distinctly different tech stack. They require quite distinctly different integrations, carriers, kind of everything, reverse logistics, just everything to do with the business model is so different that you, you are like, wow, okay, if I'm a B2B business today and I'm looking at adding a D2C channel, but I'm not even doing B2B e-commerce yet, then maybe that's a bridge too far. Maybe a B2B business needs to establish a B2B e-commerce channel because that's a business model that they know. They're used to selling cartons, pallets, and containers. They're used to dealing with reverse logistics at scale and bulk carriers and all the rest. And they're used to going out and securing customers, maybe with a field sales reps or whatever the case might be. They're used to doing that sort of outbound calling cycle to find new customers. D2C, it's a totally different skill set. D2C is primarily about digital marketing prowess, especially if you're a pure play D2C brand. It's about digital marketing prowess. It's less about having a field sales rep going out there and trying to find customers to sign up as a B2B customer. And so for you guys, how did your skill set need to evolve or how did your business process 
And how did your business model need to evolve as you went from this pure play D2C brand into adding the B2B channel? It mu there must have been a lot of hurdles to taking on that new channel that maybe you didn't even anticipate. Absolutely. And I think you've put it really well. How we went from D2C to B2B was super important in terms of product number one the product had to be dialed in and we had 500 five-star reviews before we even touched our b2b business and we thought okay this is actually going to work we have great packaging the logistics was working everything was dialed there so product logistics nailing that down first and foremost and then trying to work out okay from a scale perspective are we at the right level to think about are we going to go with a sales development rep or are we going to do it founder-led are we going to build a team what's that going to look like and we heard a really good model the other day that i think summarize this well from zero to one it's founder-led sales in terms of million one to three it's a founder-led sales team from three to ten maybe then bring someone in and 20 plus you're looking at a chief revenue officer and so how do you think about it at different levels of scale obviously that's a great problem to have to begin with you mentioned we are not we're not expert salesmen we're not expert marketeers where can we i guess gift of the gab maybe for me on a sales perspective probably not there for copy with the marketing so how do i split that within the team we actually went out to a university and we found some great interns super smart ppe graduates they can do anything and they learned the ropes tried to work out okay where are we actually have some issues, had them in for six months and we started to get the product right, got the logistics right, customer complaints went down, we met with customers and we nailed everything down before we then started to hit it at scale and start to put a bit of money behind it to grow in fair anchor store and the like and then out to Mercado as well. And if you think back to that very first B2B account that you landed, was that, what was the process to land that very first account? Was it a phone call? Was it an email? Was it a, a let's say a, an industry fair, a product fair, was it, how did you land that very first B2B account and how did it feel? Oh, what a treat. It was actually an inbound lead. I would love to have a few more of them. The business had been running for quite a while. Like I mentioned, the product got to that mature scale of 500 plus five-star reviews. And we had businesses turn around to us and say, how do I get my hands on these socks? where can I buy them? What's the pricing? And so we're then in the background scrambling around trying to work out what that looks like. And we actually still have that customer. I think they've ordered maybe 30 plus times now. And they're a really unassuming lady in the Midlands. She sells our socks at church fairs, would you believe it? And she's our second largest client compared to your huge boutique retailer. So they can come from anywhere and almost beggars can't be choosers in a way. And I'm so glad that we've got that person. I then get approaches from larger brands, boutique stores with kind of 10 plus stores now. And they're not doing the same sales that, that this lady's doing with one church fair. So that brings a smile and the inbound. Then it, once you've worked out that people want to come to you for the products that you've got, then you're off to the races and starting to think about, okay, I've got to go see where these customers actually are. And how has your technology evolved? So when you first started selling B2B, were you doing that on Shopify and effectively giving a coupon code or whatever it was to your B2B customers so that they got the right price? Or did you set up price list with maybe an app on Shopify? What has been the technical evolution? Because B2B buyers tend to have quite different needs to direct to consumer end user customers and their whole expectations around customer service, their whole expectations around tracking freight, their, their, just their whole mindset around how they engage with you as a brand is quite different to your traditional 
consumer that may be buying two, three, four pairs of socks or maybe buying Christmas gifts or it's just a whole different mindset. And so from a technical perspective, how did you start dipping your toes in the water of B2B sales? Embarrassingly, Outlook, Excel, Microsoft Word was our tech stack to begin with manually writing out invoices, going into the back end of our warehouse, creating those orders, having no tech stack to really disc or use, just manually hand cranking everything and then starting to realize, okay, we've got a problem here. We need to automate invoicing. We need to get a system that's going to do everything for us. We went into the wholesale marketplaces and those platforms quite regularly, names I'm sure all of your listeners would have heard of, Fair, Brand Boom, Anchor Store, the like, plug in our products really simply through Shopify. And then we thought, okay, this is working well, but we're really beholden to these platforms. And if that went down for whatever reason, what are we going to do to make sure that the business is still strong? And that's where we started to go direct into Shopify apps. We used a Shopify app called WPD app. It was great, but it didn't really have the functionality that we needed, like you mentioned, or that I guess those wholesale customers will need the likes of all the basics, invoicing, tracking, payment, deferred terms, all this type of stuff. We needed just a mature offering here for our own yeah, our own ideas. And I was just sick of giving away 10% of my sale to a platform for a customer, which is basically mine. And I'm doing all of the work behind it. So why don't I just plug in with a Makata-like type of app? And that's where we're at the moment, actually. So we use Makata. They're a wholesale plugin, which works really well for us directly into Shopify. Super easy to get our products out there. And that's where we're, yeah, what we're doing at the moment. And when you first started dealing with these B2B customers, if we look at compare that to today from an acquisition perspective, are you still sourcing a lot of your customers via those wholesale marketplaces initially like FAIR, which is those tens of thousands of B2B merchants, manufacturers, wholesalers, distributors on FAIR for retailers to then purchase via FAIR? And I know that a lot of manufacturers treat FAIR and other B2B marketplaces as an initial acquisition channel, a bit like D2C brands will use Amazon, eBay, their fa- name your favorite direct-to-consumer type of marketplace or B2C marketplace. They'll try to use that as an acquisition channel for end customers and then quickly, as quickly as possible, with inserts into the packaging and other communications, try to convert them to a more direct customer on the D2C website instead so that you're not constantly repaying for acquisition over and over again for that same customer through that f- favored marketplace. And if we look at your acquisition of new B2B customers today, what is the percentage perhaps of, say, an outbound motion by you versus an inbound motion of people making direct inquiries through your website versus acquiring B2B customers through the likes of a fair? What is the what does the breakdown and the split look like today? Yeah, so we've been really lucky, Jason. We did, I would say, 80% plus 90% direct from us driving through emails using FAIR's email system to begin with. And that was last year. They've then turned around and they're starting to acquire customers for us. We've got the right reviews. Our impressions are set up in the right way. We're getting a right conversion rate there. So that's working for us. And it's actually skewed more to kind of 10 to 20% of our customers are coming direct from our own efforts. They're coming mostly from the marketplaces today, which is an interesting kind of balance. I think that's just 
by virtue that we got very lucky with the FAIR algorithm. To your point around 10,000 plus retailers and 10,000 plus brands on these platforms now and not being a unique platform, I heard a really interesting stat the other day that retailers are getting hundreds of emails literally hundreds of emails from brands who are trying to sell them products. And how on earth do you stand out from the crowd when it comes to hundreds of emails? So we made a decision about six months ago, we thought something like this was going to happen. And we actually transitioned our marketing away from the in-platform CRM systems into HubSpot. And HubSpot's been a great, a great platform for us to get out to customers, emailing them and owning that channel ourselves. I think that's probably the main aim of the game over this H2 is how do we own that relationship and how do we transition them to our own platforms and make sure they have that right relationship with us. And how do you see platforms like FAIR and other B2B marketplaces, how do you see them evolving? Because obviously in their world, what their goal is to get the B2B supplier, in your case, you, their whole goal is to get all of the transactions that happen between, say, a reseller or a retailer that's buying through you to get all of those transactions to go through FAIR so that they can clip the ticket on every single one of those B2B transactions. So it's in their best interest to not help you facilitate establishing a direct relationship with the buyer. And so how do you see them trying to counter the moving those sales and those transactions off fair after the very first transaction because that's their goal their goal is to keep you inside fair not off fair so how do you yeah. see and amazon does this famously they do it very famously by monopolizing the data and all comms have to flow through their platform so you never have a direct connection with the buyer that's their famous that's the famous complaint by ddc retailers is we don't have the relationship with the customer. Amazon does. We're just, well, all we're doing is a supply, is supplying, but Amazon is the 100% end-to-end conduit of all comms uh, and facilitating the transaction. And for all intents and purposes, they become the seller of record. They become the merchant of record yeah. for that transaction. And I would assume that FAIR wants to be the same. They want to act the same. They want to behave the same. They want to own the data. They want to own the comms. They want to own the channel. And so that they want you to continue to reacquire customers through them with every single transaction, even if it's with the same end customer. So how do you see them evolving and how do you see your marketplace strategy evolving because of what they're doing and what they're trying to do to preserve their business? I think first step is there's enough margin in payment processing fees and other areas for the services being provided for everyone to take a clip of the ticket at the right stages. So I've got no complaints. Fair have delivered us literally hundreds of customers and have built our business on the wholesale. Without them, we would be really not where we are now today. And so I think they seem to be making enough money from those transactions, from the reorders, from those direct customers. So I'm not actively going out and trying to poach them as much as I, I guess maybe those Amazon discussions that you're just mentioning there. We're just trying to provide our best level of service that we can. Sometimes brands will come to us. So retailers will come to us directly and we'll service them in the channel that they find easiest. Typically that is direct, but sometimes it can be fair as well, but we're not doing anything to push them there. I heard a really interesting few kind of like industry stories, Jason, the other day that I wanted to tell you. The first one was around Abound. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them and how they they went from step one, turning off credit terms to then turning off new kind of business coming in. 
Second one is Anchor Store has recently gone from 0% for your direct customer. So if you bring them a customer, they were not charging you to use their platform. It's now 12%, I think, in Europe. I'm not sure if that's being rolled out anywhere else. If I look at the incentives across the industry, we've gone from 300 pounds of, in the UK, 300 pounds plus of incentives to get a customer to transact on fair and have that introduction with you to now, I think it's 200, previously it's been 100. So it's trending from a perspective of these people had a lot of money to burn to acquire customers and get that network set up. From where I stand, it feels like fair's won at least in the UK and our US wholesale business, they are the dominating players. I don't know where what I would do if FAIR disappeared at the moment, which as a retailer, sorry, as a brand, isn't the most comfortable position to be in. However, they're delivering kind of a four times ROAS on a first time purchase for me, introducing them from their marketplace at a 25% with a 25% commission goes down to 15% getting closer to a seven and a half times ROAS. I'm comfortable with that. I don't have to do the marketing. The, the retailers are there. They're coming. We've got great reviews. So great for me as a maybe quote unquote incumbent. But what do you do if you're a small business that's just starting off and you're coming up against someone with thousands of reviews, thousands of sales and orders, a great track record? The algorithm's just, it can't possibly favor them over those more experienced brands. So maybe okay for me to say right now, but would I say the same thing if I was a smaller brand? I don't know. But I guess any new brand trying to sell on Amazon or eBay or the Iconic or trying to sell through any marketplace, they're going to face the same challenges, the same hurdles. So have you seen, because recently, and it was only about a month ago, I saw an article online where Amazon was talking about specifically in Europe, how via their Amazon business channel, which is their B2B marketplace channel, how they are going out and they are actively courting new B2B sellers in Europe in particular because they saw B2B buyer demand skyrocket during COVID when they couldn't they couldn't have field sales rep come field sales reps come and see them and they couldn't get demos of products, et cetera, et cetera. And so they went to Amazon looking for sellers at scale, right? And so what they're also trying to do is they're not only trying to find a whole bunch more B2B sellers to plug all of the category gaps that they have from a B2B perspective in Europe, because they identified a bunch of key gaps where they basically have virtually zero representation from a B2B seller perspective, but they're also dramatically improving their Amazon logistics capability within Europe so that they can effectively offer a logistics end-to-end solution to B2B sellers so that Amazon's traditionally been known as that retail logistics network, being able to sell one individual packet and get it to the door as fast as possible from an Amazon-owned warehouse to an Amazon-owned truck to an Amazon-owned plane, kind of end-to-end, right? They're more of a logistics company than they are a retailer. But obviously with B2B, they're struggling because they have to have partner networks with large-scale carriers, bulk carriers, et cetera. And so they don't have the infrastructure and they recognize that. They don't have the infrastructure to service a lot of that B2B market because they just can't do it at the scale that B2Bs require. Again, going back to that cartons and pallets and containers versus one-off packets with two or three items in it. It's a bit, it's a totally different. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, This is a whole different level of scale for even a brand like Amazon. So have you been courted by Amazon business? Have you been courted by other B2B marketplaces wanting you to become a seller on their marketplace at scale? 
We've had conversations with Amazon before, but it, we just can't get the economics to work, at least firstly on the retail side. And then secondly, on the the brand side and selling directly to other brands, we haven't actually had them approach us there. I think our problem is mostly from a sustainability perspective. There is a element of maybe sustainability and almost like a social type of enterprise vibe in the in, in our brand. We are currently not on Amazon and actually proud of that. We believe that there's a lot of local selling that can happen within the UK and elsewhere um, that we can influence directly. I then look at the FBA costs and I start to see how that chews through margin and I can't imagine how Amazon doesn't follow a similar model in another business that they go into. Maybe they can reduce costs, but at the moment I just don't see them being able to do that well enough just yet. In terms of other marketplaces, we've been approached by quite a lot of them about pretty much all of the main ones in the UK we've got a presence on and a pretty good one at that. I think relatively mature, the SEOs in the right position, the product photography is all cropped and made sure it's in the right frame for that particular platform. And there's just no one is able to get the retailers outside of the likes of Fair at the moment. Maybe Amazon's got the heft to be able to do it, but yet to be seen. I think network effects are pretty hard to get around. Yeah. I mean, it's it feels like fair because I'm hearing this more and more from B2B merchants or hybrid merchants that are, have that channel mix between DTC and B2B. I'm hearing more and more that fair is really dominating the discussion. Like it just, and I don't know whether it's that they built a moat so early on by going out and courting the biggest, the best B2B sellers out there and they started to dominate so many categories that now they've got this barrier to entry for other marketplaces that it just makes it almost unassailable. And it feels like they're doing the right thing. If what I'm hearing is correct by you, they're doing the right thing by merchants by trying to bring the percentage of take or the carry that they take down over time as opposed to increasing it over time. Normally, what we see is when there's a monopoly in place, which it feels like they've got a semi-monopoly in certain respects, they raise their prices because they have a monopoly and they can do that. We saw that with Uber, right? We haven't seen Uber reduce the take that they get from restaurants with their monopoly position because they're a marketplace too, right? They're a marketplace of sellers and buyers. They're a three-sided marketplace, service provider, buyers, and sellers. And do you see that as being part of their strategy, their retention strategy at FAIR is by being really fair with the take that they take out of the transaction? It's You're 100% right. It's hard to imagine previously working in a big corporate, I can't imagine being a manager sitting there in front of a monopoly business and not thinking, you know what, I've got my annual operating plan I need to make. And I know that no, these people are going nowhere. So, you know, what's an extra 50p fee? Oh, let's put another five pounds on. Before you know it, it's something much larger. And FAIR's not done that yet. I Maybe they don't feel like they've got the monopoly position just yet. Maybe they feel like people have other options and they still want to compete against the big, bad 900-pound gorilla of Amazon in this place, in this market, ready to take down and take down Fair's lunch. But Fair's backed by some massive providers. I think it's probably an interesting perspective of would, if they were to get monopoly power, how many people would really care? Could you go to your politician, your local lawmaker and say, look, this business, which I'm totally relying on, is just abusing their market power. How long would that take? I've got no idea, but I can't imagine it would be before most businesses had massive issues. And so 
at the moment, FAIR's main mission and their priority is to be, I think it's something like helping small businesses or local businesses. The other day, we run two kind of businesses. We've also got a corporate gifting business as well. And we sell our socks through that. So I purchase as a retailer from other brands on FAIR. And there's still gaps, Jason. I think they've probably got 95% of the things that I need. But the other day, I needed some point of sale sands. And there was... Yeah, half dozen providers that could do some type of sock point of sale stand. That's ridiculous. So I don't think it's still super mature. I think that long tail of products is going to take a while to get there. Amazon could probably do it. AliExpress and Alibaba, they've done it really well as well. Um, could they cut out the middleman and someone else from China come through from those big providers as well? Probably. I dread to think though, if we do get a monopoly in this space and what that would do to, to our business. Oh God. <laughs> Are you a small or medium-sized wholesaler that currently processes your transactions manually? Or maybe you're a D2C merchant that is looking to expand and add a B2B e-commerce channel but don't know how. Well, if you're ready to take the next steps on your B2B merchant journey, check out Mikata.cloud today to find out more about the e-commerce platform built from the ground up for small and medium B2B merchants. That's Mikata.cloud, M-I-K-A-T-A dot cloud. And did you guys ever imagine selling through Alibaba or any of the major Asian B2B marketplaces? Alibaba was the first major global B2B marketplace. It put it put Alibaba on everybody's on everybody's lips. And then of course we got AliExpress. And then of course they've got their retail business. And yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting way that they built their business. They started with the B2B space, not the space. And then they leveraged their B2B prowess and their distribution capability into AliExpress and all of the other platforms that they now distribute through. So for you guys, did you ever, obviously, unless you're manufacturing in China, it's probably going to be pretty hard to be competitive on Alibaba. But from your perspective, did you ever look at some of the Asian B2B marketplaces as a channel that you would consider? We're listed on one or two. The names escape me because we just haven't seen success there. It's hard to compete with the shipping costs. You've got a European labor base and the costs that come with that. So we've not been able to do it and get into Asia. Would I love to do it? Yes. But I think like more broadly, what are our expansion plans for bear kind? I think are interesting as well. So we've doubled down in the UK. We've gone after a couple of niches. We're starting to go out through post those e-commerce channels and going into kind of almost like the back door and going onto these trade fairs, starting to look at them in a big way. What does our presence look like there? And trying to leverage all the relationships that we have through our e-commerce enabled B2B sales. We want to expand into another factory in the US, sorry, factory, I should say warehouse into the US to just really decrease our costs and our shipping times there, which we just get murdered on going across the Atlantic. And then we're trying to expand, I think probably post that up upstream, maybe not upstream, but more into the larger scale providers, the likes of a Walmart. They've started to get into some B2B offerings as well. John Lewis here in the UK, some of the larger trade shops here that we could probably get a brand in, start to have that something that I would say maybe mum and dad are proud to be like, oh, look, Andrew's in the British Library and he's in Sears, Walmart and the like. And so we're trying to expand into that space and go more into 
you know, just those bigger providers. Asia hasn't got there. And I think my Chinese goes as far as Jiawo Andy, which is my name is Andy and Shesheni. Thank you. That's it. So I don't know if I'm going to be able to get on the phone to a customer who's upset, doesn't know where their package is. A classic Wismo query. And I'm thinking, oh God. How do I, what do I do with this? this? Yeah, look, I totally understand what you're saying. And even the brands, because I've helped a brand that I used to work for as an employee, help them get onto AliExpress. And we had to go through one of the AliExpress approved, I think they call them a facilitator or a partner or whatever they call them, to do right. the customer service in Chinese, et cetera. And they take a, they take a pretty big cut. Then, of course, AliExpress takes a pretty, pretty big cut. Even for a large brand that's doing tens of millions of dollars a year in sales, AliExpress was a total lost leader. It, it, we just couldn't we just couldn't make the economics work selling into the Chinese market because of their expectations of discounting and their expectations of service are really high as well. So you've got this kind of got these two opposing forces. You've got the super high expectation of customer experience and service, and you've got super high expectations of the cheapest price, the cheaper, the cheaper, the better, and the, and you'll be the oh, cheapest God. in the world. If you sell on AliExpress, they feel like totally opposing forces. I'm not quite sure how China does it. I'm not quite sure how people who sell into China. I heard a saying a few years ago, and it's rung true ever since in my mind, that the, the success of Western brands in China will be measured by how little money they lose, not how much money they make. So that's quite an interesting thing. And a lot of these, <laughs> a, a lot of these brands, what they've leveraged China as is an economy of scale market whereby they can boost up the amount of manufacturing they're doing. So even though they might lose a little bit in China, the scale allows them then to make better margins in all the other markets they sell in. So if they go from basically a micro manufacturer, a bespoke, tiny, almost an artisan manufacturer scale, and then they all of a sudden go to hyperscale via China. Now, in the other markets, the UK, the rest of Europe, North America, etc., now they, their margins become instantly, overnight, significantly better in those markets because they've reached uh, economies of scale from the manufacturing side. So I've seen more brands start to leverage China in that way as opposed to a profit center. Like They don't look at China as a profit center. They use it as a scale center. And so that's quite an interesting saying that I heard these many years ago, and it's, and it's borne itself out in multiple occasions ever since. But for you guys, when you're looking at new B2B markets, right? So in the D2C space, it's a pretty well-trodden path. When we want to look at a new market, then we maybe dip our toes in a local marketplace. We see if there's demand. We build up the demand for the brand. We don't have local logistics. We don't have a local 3PL. Then maybe we establish a local 3PL where we can ship to at scale, distribute locally, faster shipping. Then maybe we establish a local D2C e-commerce site with a local domain, with everything localized, Shipping localized, everything localized, right? And that's the well-trodden path for D2C. It's not quite so straightforward for B2B because there's more complexity to it, especially when we're talking logistics. So when you think of international expansion on the B2B front, you've already talked about, look, we'd like to establish a, a warehouse, so probably a 3PL relationship in the United States as we start to target that market more. Is, and so when you think about expanding and testing the waters in a local market from a B2B perspective, it doesn't usually start with the marketplace. Does it usually start with the fair and the markets that they're already strong in? And is that kind of, you follow that a similar path? Yeah. And f what we've done is 
probably different to most people. We're relatively junior in this domain, I, I expect. We've been operating for kind of five years, two years proper in the B2B space. We've just nailed the UK and that's been our priority, just niching down. So I can talk to a niche perspective, expanding out those niches. We're pretty large in podiatrists at the moment. We're going expanding out into the boutiques and the gift stores and trying to expand out the branding and the marketing to be more more focused on, I guess, a fashion market. And that's done really well. Expansion into the US and a really kind of 80% of our sales is currently in the UK with our, our B2B business. And then another 10% to the US, two or 3% to, and this is each, to France, Germany, the Netherlands, Spain, those richer countries. We've got a relatively expensive bamboo sock, but it's high quality. It has like the sustainability angles to it. And so we are looking at the US to expand into. And the way that we're thinking about doing it is there's a new platform that's about to be launched. I'm not sure if it's actually still in stealth yet or not. So I won't mention the name, but they are doing a really interesting model where they get brand influencers they give your influencers their own kind of website. You connect in your Shopify as a brand to them and we can say connect up 5, 10, 15, 20 products. Just have those brand influencers sell that on the US platform and they sell it directly. We won't have any relationship. It will all be through this celebrity. We will pay a small commission, but we don't have to pay for the marketing. And we're just using that to just like hotwire, hot start these, I guess, your relationships with Firstly, consumers, then we'll expand that into our B2B offering and we'll have a small product offering that we give to our B2B customers in the US and we'll say, guys, this is everything. We'll start to move 3,000 socks up socks across the US in the next month or so and we'll expand that rapidly as we start to bed down, get some level of scale, have some orders coming through and then we'll switch everything across to the US warehouse probably by the end of the year, year I'd expect. But for us, it's just like, what are these little hacks, these hot wire tips that you can go into finding an industry body, calling them up, doing a speech, doing an email off the back of them, getting 50 wholesale orders in the course of a day and just rapidly fulfilling them, doing a couple of YouTube videos with these experts in their domains. Just how, what are the hack, the growth tips that you've got? It sounds crude, but it just works. That's what we do to get into industries. And we'll do the same thing to get into geographies. And I think what you said earlier really resonates with me in that this is almost a product-led growth model, right? In the sense that, okay, let's create our own demand. Let's seed the market with demand by having our D2C channel and doing that really well, executing that super well so that we have the name recognition, so that we have the brand recognition, so that we have this, I guess, this fan base, this super fan base of our products, of our brand that they're telling their friends. And we've started to build up some network effects. We started to have these influencer relationships that are bearing fruit, that we've proven out the market, that there is the demand there. And then, as you said, I think many B2B brands overlook the power of consumer d demand driving B2B demand. Because obviously, if I'm a consumer and I walk into a store and I say, do you have X? Because I want to buy it from my local store along with the other 15 things that I want to buy while I'm there. And they constantly hearing that request, but they're constantly having to say no, then the category buyers all of a sudden are going to be starting, where's this demand coming from? We, we've got to fulfill this demand. So it's almost like grassroots demand that then filters its way up through the B2B retailers and wholesalers, et cetera. And then all of a sudden they, they try to figure out where can I actually source this product? And if I think about my own personal life, that was many years ago, I wanted to sell a product that I had seen at a fair 
And I was trying to find out where I could buy it. So I was just Googling my butt off trying to find this product. And it turns out it was actually manufactured in China. And there was actually two or three manufacturers manufacturing a similar product. But the, uh, because I found this, it was at a fair. And it was one of those looking Apple peelers and corers. And you just oh, yeah. you, you rotate a hand crank. And it was really cool. It looked cool. It was nice. It looked good in your kitchen. It was decorative, it but, but yeah. it felt amazing. And it did an amazing job. So that if you wanted to make an apple pie, for example, you crank through a couple of apples and boom, they're ready to go straight in your apple pie. And so I thought, man, this is amazing. But I think that's an example of who knows how that product came to be in this little local fair at a market that was being sold along with other products and who knows the supply chain dynamics that caused that thing to get from China all the way to a local fair. But I think point out a very good thing here that I think is oftentimes overlooked by B2B merchants that think they have to have this massive outbound effort that there can be grassroots demand that you build in a direct to consumer fashion. Absolutely. And Jason, I was checking out our website the other day, right? Lifetime visits to bearkind.co.uk. UK business, UK website, pretty much get traffic mostly with all of our sessions to the UK. And we think we've had close to two and a half million people see our ads. That's our estimate, right? And then you break it down with a click-through rate, purchase rate, what have you. You're telling me that two and a half million people, there's not some small business owners there. You're joking. And if you've got, just have that landing page. These are productive, proactive people and they're going to find you out. They're going to email you, they'll contact you and then you can just make it easier and easier once you've got the right processes and procedures in place. And we are really struggling to keep up with demand. I think we're close to 800 retailers now in the UK. We probably don't need to grow that much to be a great business here and that's all been in the past 18 months just from the UK. So we've got an opportunity to grow in a different way. I think previously, maybe you had to have that outbound sales effort because you probably couldn't support a hundred pound order. You know, who's going to be buying 20, 30 socks from an on the phone rep, doing a manual invoice, fulfilling it through the warehouse. But I can suddenly get someone to click through it all themselves. They'll have a better journey because they actually want to do the choices themselves. I can give them a collection that shows our best sellers, the ratios, get everything built as a product rather than a service to these wholesalers. And suddenly I've got a pretty low cost of fulfillment compared to everybody else. I'm looking at these other boys and girls and I was talking to a brand the other day, a really well-known high street brand here in the UK. And they for their international market, they had 50 people managing, I think it was close to 10,000 retailers. And the other day I looked at it, what we've got close to a thousand retailers and it's me maybe a day a week, two days a week if I'm lucky, plus a virtual assistant just doing kind of Wismo, where is my orders and that type of stuff. How on earth do you scale a 10,000 retail business with 50 people working for you? What are they doing? So you've got to go really big. You've got to spend a lot of time on sales. You're probably losing people as well because it's not going to be really quick to get everything through. You're going to be doing manual credit checks. You're going to be sitting in the middle between that credit risk. We've had, I think it was maybe like closer to 50. I don't know the number exactly, but we've already had two people go bust with our socks. Why do I need to worry about that? I call up my dad who's an accountant and I say, dad, this is ridiculous. Where do I, where's this money going? I want to go in there and collect my socks on there. It belongs to the liquidator now. It's not yours. What? Where, where did that, where did that change? From a, now I understand where people get these 50 person teams to manage 10,000 retailers and 
maybe that's the next step for us. Maybe I need to take this small scale and go into 10,000 retailers and go for bigger tickets and do that manual sales. But for the moment, it seems pretty easy doing what we're doing. Yeah. And look, I think that there's that, it's kind of like me as a consultant, right? I could try to grow a consulting team. I could try to turn it into an agency. I could try to take over implementation instead of just pure consulting. But there's something to be said for quality of life. There's something to be said for peace of mind and peace of heart and peace of bank account. There's something to be said for not, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 mouths to feed and feeling the immense pressure that goes along with that. And I have felt that pressure before when I've run agencies before that there's people relying on you for their livelihood. And there's something to be said for micro scale businesses, which turn into maybe not macro scale, maybe not hundreds of millions of dollars of scale, but a nice, tidy, sustainable growing business that's not growing at hyperscale to where I've got to take on VC money just to continue to scale and just to continue to meet demand. So I think there's something to be said for that. And it feels like for you guys, not only do you have not only do you have a social conscience as a business, and not only is that a core part of what you do and what you've always done, but it also feels like lifestyle is important to you guys. And not necessarily going out with the vision of we want to be the biggest, baddest supplier out there of this product. We actually want to have a quality of life too. We want to be able to see the world. We want to be able to get to know the world. We want to see the world through different lenses. We want to contribute back to the world and make it a better place as long as we're here. And it doesn't feel like you have this because a lot of, I guess a lot of entrepreneurs I talk to, they have visions of world domination, right? In, in, in their mind. And whilst that's great, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I think there's, you have to temper that and it, and it almost 50 years old now. I have tempered my desire for world domination with a desire to make a positive impact combined with a lifestyle that allows me to have quality time with family, friends, contributing back to society in a meaningful way. I I guess my life has to have meaning in addition to just the dollars and cents of it. Absolutely. And we live six months in the UK, six months in Australia. We chase summers to summers. I think I last spoke to you. I was in New Zealand. I think you're in Mexico. And, you know, what a quality of life to be able to see my my partners. She's British, so we spend quite a lot of time here. I see my family in Australia. But one of the things that I like the way you put it, kind of that, that world domination, I think people have this, but I don't know why they have it for next year, the year after, three years, five years. I've got that view. I want world domination for our bear kind socks, but I want it in 20 years, 30 years. I'm fine to wait. We're here for the long run. We want to build a sustainable, profitable business, which works. Call me old school. I'm a former accountant, but I want to do it profitable year on year, month on month. Let's be liquid. Let's make sure that we can pay our donations. And I think there is something to be said for these businesses that grow 20% year on year. Patagonia, 20% year on year, they refuse to grow anymore. They are an incredible business right now. They've had one of the largest impacts from a social, environmental and governance perspective that you've probably ever seen of a company. And Yvonne did that over the course of 40 years. And that's something that Lucy and I talk about regularly. We want to do this over decades. We're here for a long run. Let's enjoy it whilst we're here. Let's make sure we do it in the right way. Let's make sure it's profitable. Sure, we've, sp- we've spoken to VCs. We've spoken to other outside investors to think about bringing in capital. And every time I just check myself at the door and just think, hold on, I'm going to have to have someone who needs to triple their money in three years. Is that what I want to build for myself? Not just yet. Could I grow the business rapidly with that money and that outside capital? Absolutely. But 
I think it brings in a lot more risks. I'm going to have to take on some debt. I'm going to have to grow the team. You can't get rid of a team once you've brought the team in as much as some people would like to. And so there's a responsibility there. And that's the way that we're doing it. Call me crazy. Everyone I speak to that's been successful at 60 years old, I'm a 30-year-old now, but at the 60-year-olds I speak to that are really successful, they've, they all did the same game for 30 years, 40 years, and now they're suddenly successful. But the ones that have been the most successful are the ones that you can just see the bloke just radiates happiness. He's just, dude, I did what I wanted for 30 years. I had a great time. Why would I do anything else? And that's probably who I want to emulate. Be there for the long run, enjoy myself and build a business that, yeah, can hopefully one day everyone turns around and says, okay, of course, we have to donate 10% of profits. It's the standard. And I think you you really you make a very good point, which is that that ancient saying that it took 30 years to build an overnight success. And uh, that's what a lot of people see from the outside looking in. They just see, they feel like a brand just burst onto the scene and all of a sudden they were just everywhere overnight. No, oftentimes it took them many years of hard graft, but enjoyable graft because they love what they were doing to get where it, it appears from the outside looking in that this was an overnight success. And it's just not the norm. It occasionally happens. Sure, you may have a certain influencer that buys your product and they love it and they post it out to socials and all of a sudden you get the network effect and it instantly happens overnight for you. And maybe you it was a bit of luck of the draw or you maybe engineered that to happen in some way. And so some brands do experience that little bit of overnight success, but it is absolutely the exception, not the rule. And I think that, yeah. that building a bootstrapped sustainable business over time, we've seen the dangers of taking on capital, particularly for D2C brands. We've seen it with Allbirds. We've seen it with 8Sleep. We've seen it with Casper. We've seen it with, we've seen it with hundreds oh, yeah. and hundreds of D2C brands that were fueled by cheap capital from VCs with very high expectations of return, which made them make decisions as a business for the short term that were never, ever going to last in the long term to try to keep the VCs happy. And we now see how dangerous that is. We see D2C brands that were born during COVID when TAM exploded for shopping online. And now they're totally unsustainable on the backside of that. Totally unsustainable. So I admire what you're doing. I admire your patience. I admire your vision for the long term. I admire this social conscience, which is infused into everything that you do. And I think that it, that, that is going to become more popular with customers, not less. The concept of sustainability, the concept of a social conscience, that is going to become more important to customers, not less. Sure, in a, in a, in a recession like is being engineered right now by the central banks, of course, people sometimes are just simply looking for the cheapest product they can buy, but that won't always be the case. And so basically, once you get past the point of purely shopping for needs, and now all of a sudden you can shop for a few more wants because you've got a little bit more money, now all of a sudden you can be a little bit more conscious and a little bit more intentional with where you spend your money. And I think that's the kind of brand that you're building is to service that market, to service the market that has the money, that has enough money to be able to be intentional and conscious with their buying decisions and making an impact with the money that they spend every single day. So I applaud you. I applaud what you've done. I applaud the methodical way that you have built a sustainable business, not only for the planet, but for your long-term sustainability and viability as a business. Balancing the commercial with the responsibilities that you feel that you have to the wider world. It's a hard thing to do. There's been a lot of businesses that didn't start out sustainable and they've tried to bolt on 
a social conscience and a concept of sustainability. They're trying to bolt that on after the fact in an effort to almost greenwash in a way. And that almost always falls flat. But you guys have always had that modality right from day dot. And I think that comes across as being much more authentic as a result. And that's going to fuel future growth in ways that you might not even know yet. Oh, absolutely. And Jason, your audience here is decision makers and business owners. That's probably the number one takeaway I would take from Bearkind. How Lucy set this business up of having 10% of profits donated to the animal in the sock and have that in the product itself. It's not something that we think of as an afterthought when we get down with the accountants and we sit down with them and we say, okay, yeah, let's donate whatever 10% of net was. That's not what we do. We do 10% of gross and it's a core part of the business. But what it unlocks is just ridiculous. Customers come to bat for us all the time. We get some customers who come to us and say, oh, well, why isn't it 20%? Why is it 100%? We've got to do something to build in a sustainable way and we want to try and grow this business. Maybe one day it will become 100%, but at the moment, that's not the right way. There are heaps of charities and we just link straight to the charities that we donate to. If you want to do that, here's the charity link. It's free marketing for them. That's great. That's what we want to achieve as well. But customers support you. Suppliers want to work with you. Agencies are comfortable to give you advice. You get opportunities that you wouldn't otherwise get when you're comparing yourself with these other businesses where it's just, it's not core. People can smell it. They work it out. They can see it. And I previously was a banker in another life. And I thought to Lucy, why would you do it like this? Let's just do it at the end. But actually making it the core part is the game changer. That's the unlock. That's the unfair advantage that we have against these other sock brands that they're the same price. They donate nothing. They try and think about the bottom line as much as possible, but it's just, it's not thinking in like a broader way. So that's got to change. Love it, mate. Love it. Now, if people want to find out more about Bearkind or get in contact with you, Andrew Kemp of Bearkind, what is the best way for people to find out more, get in touch with you, reach out, open a dialogue, have a conversation, specifically, especially if they're a retailer or a reseller that wants to carry Bearkind products, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Absolutely. We're at bearkind.com or .co.uk, wherever you find us on socials as well. We're at Bearkind. We run a YouTube channel at Bearkind where we share some of our business tips that work. So if you're a small business as well, we're trying to help pay it forward as much as Jason's up there in a different scale for us. We're trying to consult for, not really consult, give our story to other small businesses as well. So find us at Bearkind on YouTube and they're the main areas. Flick me a message. Nice. Happy to chat. Awesome, mate. And we're now at the point where I get to flip the script and hand the microphone over to you and let you ask me one question, any question you like. It can be personal, can be professional. It's over to you, Mr. Andrew Kemp of Bearkind. What is your question for me today? Jason, we are at an interesting part of the business. It's grown rapidly over the past five years. 2,000 pounds, 20,000 pounds, 250,000 pounds, 500,000 pounds. And we're making these big step jumps each year. And we're just trying to get them continue to be profitable. As you see a business that where we're at getting close to a million pounds of revenue year on year, what are those next big jumps that you see businesses needing to make from a technology perspective, team, what's the first things that come to your mind of like, hey, what do they need to actually do to make it go to the next level? I would have maybe given a different answer even six months ago, but funnily enough, I just had an interview yesterday with Ryan out of Australia. He runs a he runs an irrigation, an online irrigation company, Ryan Imlach. 
And what he was explaining to me and why I had him on the podcast was he was talking about how he was leveraging ChatGPT in his business on literally a daily basis. And I think that in the short to medium term, trying to weave ChatGPT usage into your business, and he gave me a concrete example. So he, at my recommendation, I was consulting with him a couple of years ago, and I recommended NetSuite as his ERP, he implemented NetSuite through a, a partner that I trust, and I recommend to people. And he had a great time implementing ERP as a beast of a project, but th- they were at a scale that they had to have it. Otherwise, they were going to be constrained in their growth if they didn't have a business operating system in the back of their business for inventory management and financials and all the rest. And But what he found was after it was implemented, there were certain things and customizations and integrations he wanted to do, and he didn't want to always go back to the partner for every little thing. He wanted to own and maintain a lot more of those business processes and the technology maintenance and to make sure that he didn't accumulate technical debt over time that he didn't even understand himself, he wanted to own more of that. And so what he started using ChatGPT for initially was writing SuiteScript for automations. Now, for anybody that doesn't know, NetSuite has its own programming language called SuiteScript. It's very similar to JavaScript. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to introduce some automations inside the platform to automate certain manual tasks that his team was doing every single day inside the platform from a reporting perspective and a few other things. So what he did is he went to ChatGPT and he says, I want to do this. I need a sweet script to do this. And it spat it out. He implemented it. It didn't work. Now that was on ChatGPT 3.5. He went back once uh, ChatGPT got upgraded to to ChatGPT 4.0. He put that script back in. He said, this is what didn't work. This is the error that I got. Can you give me the sweet script to achieve this thing? He got the output. He implemented it directly within NetSuite, instantly worked. He wanted to write an integration between NetSuite and his marketing automation platform. He was able to do that with SuiteScript and with a middleware tool using the script that he got from ChatGPT and mapping all of the information that he got from physical retail back into NetSuite from physical retail and his marketing automation platform. So customers, for example, that never bought online, but they only bought through physical retail, and he got all that information out pumped it into NetSuite, which also gets pumped and plumbed into his marketing automation platform. If they come in, for example, and they don't buy, but the person at the counter captures some information about them, then that can go directly into NetSuite as a prospect to go through the CRM system, which is part of NetSuite, and also go into marketing automation. So he's built a whole bunch of automation and a whole bunch of customizations himself just using ChatGPT. So I would say, look, before you... before you go down the path of in the rabbit hole of upgrading systems and doing custom integrations and all those things are great. And at some point you will have to have that. There's no question about it. The technology is a massive enabler, but I would say, what can you do with what you have today that will be more efficient if you introduce some form of AI or an AI driven third party tool? Cause the vast majority of merchants out there, they will adopt AI via another platform, a plugin, an app, an extension, something, they will adopt AI not by using it directly, but by leveraging it via an app that seamlessly plugs into the tooling that they've already got. So that would be my key recommendation is how can your business start to leverage AI today in a really practical grassroots way that makes you more efficient, which will delay the need to upgrade systems, processes, et cetera. It, It will just delay the time that you need to maybe take on staff or you need to grow the team or whatever it might be. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're starting to use it mostly for leveraging our people that we've got now. The other day, we wrote 50 emails in one day using GPT-4. Unbelievable. 
precise. We had to fact check some of the things, but it's getting better. It's getting better every day. Thanks, Jason. Really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to chatting again soon, brother. If you're into B2B commerce and you would like to be a guest on B2B Commerce Corner, simply go to ecommerceedge.net, click on more info, then click on be a guest and fill out your details and we will get back to you straight away.